I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 8. I mentioned last week that with this chapter, there's a bit of a change in the direction of Daniel's book. We noted last week that starting in chapter 7, we're dealing not just with the historical section of Daniel in which he recounts uh, different events in the life of his service in Babylon, but starting in chapter 7, we see uh, the visions that God gave to Daniel and his responses to those visions. Uh, chapter 8 marks a change that you can't see in your pew Bible. Because from chapter 2 through 7, he wrote in Aramaic, which was the, the language of the nations, the language of statecraft in his age. And that made sense because the events related there and that vision in chapter 7 had regard to world events, world kingdoms, and how God was establishing His kingdom in the midst of those world kingdoms, and even over them. But now in chapter 8, we return to Hebrew, the language of the covenant people, the language of Israel. And that's important because the visions that we see here and also Daniel's response they relate particularly to the people of God. Though they discuss and they make mention of the kingdoms of the world, and in fact, uh, show a really remarkable degree of accuracy concerning world events that were still future to Daniel, nonetheless, the focus is on the people of God and what it means to them. So in chapter 8, Daniel declares in the third year, of the reign of Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both of the horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him with his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host, and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it, together with the regular burnt offering, because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking. And another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering? 
the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot. And he said to me, For twenty-three hundred evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kingdom, the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision. For it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Amen. Beloved of God in Christ. If you're at all like me. When you've read this chapter, your response has been to sit back and kind of wipe your face and say, Wow, that's fascinating. I have no idea what that means. There's no denying that this is a very difficult passage to wrap our minds around. At first glance, there seems to be little in it for us to take hold of and to use in order to really open it up. It's like a, a locked safe that doesn't have a seam, that doesn't have a crack that we can shove a tool into to pry it open. And certainly that's how Daniel felt. He lay in bed for days, overcome by this vision. And when he finally went about his business, he walked about in a fog, appalled by the vision and not understanding it. If Daniel can't understand it, how can we? But we have a couple things that Daniel didn't have. By God's grace, we have a historical perspective that Daniel lacked. In other words, we know the end of the story. And we have dwelling among us and within us the Holy Spirit, who interprets the word that he inspired. And we need to seek His help in understanding this because this passage, although it seems 
maybe at first glance a bit confusing, it actually gives us some important messages. The first message is that God is faithful. What he describes here has already happened. It came to pass exactly the way he described it. Now there are liberal biblical scholars that, that answer that, that explain that away by saying, well, clearly then, Daniel didn't write it. It had to have been written in the second century uh, when they already knew what happened. They were looking back and saying, you know, this is what happened. That's stupid. Why would they do that? Why would they take the time to do that, for one thing? But beyond that, some of the language Daniel uses here, especially regarding the, the geography, a person in the second century would be hard-pressed to remember. It was written from the perspective of one living in Babylon. Without getting into all the details, trust me on that, we can talk about it later if you'd like, but this part of what God's showing us here is that He's the king over history. He's sovereign over all that comes to pass. He wrote the end of the story before the beginning began to unfold. And so he's able to lay out with absolute certainty, with all the details, what's going to happen, and, and then we watch it all happen. So we can trust the word, all the word that he proclaims to us. That's kind of a side note, but that's not the main lesson here. The main lesson is that there's a consequence for corruption. And that's what we need to consider this evening. Daniel beholds the latter day desolation of the corrupt church. That's what we see in chapter 8. Daniel beholds the latter day desolation of the corrupt church. And the desolation, the, the destruction that he beholds, first of all, is carried out by worldly powers. That's the first thing we're going to see. Now, pardon me a minute because I'm going to, a couple minutes, I'm going to give you a bit of a history lesson that you need in order to understand the chapter. I know... A lot of you kids think you don't like history. That's just because you haven't really dug into it. It's really fascinating. But this history is really fascinating. Daniel sees this vision about a ram and a goat. Now a ram, you know, that's a boy sheep. Um, depending on the breed of sheep, uh, they often have, the males have horns, two horns. They tend to curl, right? And if you've ever experienced the wrath of a ram, you know that those horns can hurt. That's the way that they express their power, right? I remember a time when we were caring for livestock for a friend at, at another church, and um, one of my kids was taking care of the sheep and calls out to me, Dad, a little help here. Kid's over in the corner, and there's a ram standing there every time the kid starts to move gets shoved back in the corner. That's how a ram's horns work, right? They express their power through those horns. Well, he sees this ram, and this ram is pushing to one side and to the other. And Daniel is told that this ram represents the Medo-Persian kingdom. That's why it has two horns, the Medes and the Persians. The one horn came up later, but it's larger than the other. That represents Persia. That was the more powerful half of the kingdom of the Persians and the Medes. And it pushes. Notice that, that he says that it, uh, it's charging westward and northward and southward and no beast could stand before him. And when, now remember, Daniel's 
seeing this and writing this when Babylon is still in power. But what he sees there is exactly what the, the Persians and the Medes did. They pushed in those three directions. They expanded in those three directions. And they conquered everything they touched for the most part. For the most part. But then he sees a goat that comes flying across the, the land from the west. Doesn't even touch the ground. It's got one conspicuous horn and it attacks the ram and no one can stop it and it destroys the ram, knocks it down, knocks off the horns and tramples it into the dust. That's Greece. That's the kingdom that would arise after the Medes and the Persians. This is hundreds of years after Daniel writes that this is going to happen. But it's exactly what happened. The, the single horn, the solitary horn, represents Alexander the Great, who was a mighty tactician and a powerful general who led Greece into world domination, really. Totally overcame the Medes and the Persians and a lot of other people. Expanded his kingdom down into Egypt, into India, throughout most of Europe. But when he was only... 33 years old, he died. Ruler for only 13 years. Conquered so many people, led so many armies onto the battlefield, and he got struck down by a fever. And so unexpected was this, there was no one to take his place. He had built this sprawling kingdom, this massive empire that reached all, all over their uh, reach, really, as far as they could reach, as far as they could see. And he's holding all the reins in his hand. He dies and nobody knows what to do about it. There's immediately this internal power struggle. What do we do? How do we? It took seven years before someone replaced him. And when someone replaced him, it wasn't someone, it was someone's. It was four of his generals. They divided up the Greek kingdom into four zones, as it were, and they took over each of those zones. Lysimachus, Cassander, Ptolemy Lagi, and Seleucus. But one of the places they had a hard time dividing up was Palestine. It stood right between the Syrian sector and the Egyptian sector. And so the Seleucids, who were governors over Syria, and the Ptolemies, who were governors over Egypt, kept fighting against Palestine because it was a trade route. And it had a lot of valuable commodities. And they both wanted it. And so they fought and they struggled and finally... One of the four horns, the Seleucid Antiochus the Great, gained power over the promised land. But he wasn't the little horn. He was one of the four. It was his son, Antiochus Epiphanes, who then arose from him, the little horn. Antiochus Epiphanes, he had a hard life. He was taken from his father when he was 12 years old. He was educated in Greece uh, for quite a number of years, almost a decade, before finally he came back. But when he came back, he was determined to not only take over his father's reign, but to increase it, to magnify it immensely. He wanted to be the next, uh, the next Alexander. And so he called himself not just Antiochus III, which is what he was, but Antiochus III Epiphanes. Epiphanes is Greek for the appearing. Imagine that, calling yourself the Apiri. Because he wanted everybody to think he was the physical manifestation of Zeus. He wanted everybody to believe he was 
God in human form. It was like a Jew calling himself Emmanuel. That's what he was doing. And he wanted to unite his realm and all the realms he intended to conquer under Greek culture. And so he instituted this forced practice of unity. The people in all the lands he controlled would know Greek culture. They would worship according to Greek religion. They would participate in Greek social rights. They would speak the Greek language. They would be Greeks no matter what their background, no matter what their history. That's the background to this. And so he attacked the host of heaven. Now what do we mean by that? Verse 10. Verse 10 says, This little horn grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. So does that mean that he actually attacked angels? No. We're, we find the explanation to that in verse 24. Uh, or verse 23. At the latter end, no, it is verse 24. At the latter end of the kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, his king arises, his power shall be great, but not by his own power, and he shall cause fearful destruction, and shall succeed in what he does, and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. The host of heaven were the people of God. The people whom God loved, who were destined for heaven. It was these whom he brought down and the stars were their leaders whom he trampled into the dust. You see, as I said, he wanted to unite his kingdom under Greek culture. And so he sought to civilize these nations under his control. And many of them just gave in. It was the easy way, right? This guy's the powerful guy. You do what he says. That's the way it had been done for hundreds and hundreds of years. And that was the way you survived. But not, not all the Jews believed that. The Orthodox among the Jews were absolutely horrified at the efforts of Antiochus. They understood that Greek thought implicitly denies the true God. That Greek sports and art celebrate lust and worldliness. That Greek mythology is a false religion which no true worshiper of God could, could embrace. Nonetheless, Antiochus, believe it or not, had followers, had conspirators among the Jews. It wasn't that they embraced Greek culture, that they thought it was so great, it was that Antiochus had the power and that's what they wanted. They cozied up to Antiochus believing that if they did, he would give them power, he would give them fame, he would give them money, and that's what they craved. And the final straw for the faithful was when one of Antiochus's supporters so cozied up to him that he named him the high priest. And the faithful ones rose up against this pretender to the priesthood in rebellion. And that brought the clash. Antiochus came against Jerusalem, intending to crush the resistance. He immediately treated Jerusalem as a rebel city. He attacked on the Sabbath when many of the faithful wouldn't fight. Slaughtered many of the leaders of the opposition. The city walls were destroyed. The, the temple treasury was looted. A garrison of soldiers was lodged in the city to enforce compliance. And Antiochus redoubled his efforts to make them Greeks. Israel's God, he said, is now Jupiter. And he set up an image of Jupiter on the temple altar. Pigs, which were unclean for Jews, were slaughtered in the temple courts 
Soldiers committed indecent acts in the temple. Copies of the scripture were burned. The study of God's law was forbidden. And anyone who kept the ceremonial law of Moses, eating only clean foods, observing the Sabbath, circumcising their children, they were sentenced to death for doing those things. This was an ugly, barbaric, wicked attack against the people of God. It was nothing short of the desolation of Israel, of the church, carried out by worldly powers in rebellion against our God. So what's the significance of that? What's the lesson in that? Brothers and sisters, understand that Antiochus Epiphanes was Antichrist. Now that might be a little confusing since last week I said that the power arising from the fourth kingdom was Antichrist. This is really the third kingdom according to that vision. But understand that Antichrist is not a person. It's a title. It is that worldly power which rises up against God and seeks to destroy the people of God. Which seeks to silence the word of God and corrupt the message of the gospel. Those who stand firm on the truth of God's word, those who stand firm in their submission to the true God, He will attack. He will seek to destroy. He will try to pummel down into the ground. That's what we're seeing here. We're seeing the attack of the world. We're seeing the attack of the culmination of the power of rebellion seeking to destroy the people of the true God. We see it today. They don't... In our, in our nation, in our culture, they don't seek to bait the Muslims so that they can file a lawsuit against them so that they can get them to stop living out their faith. They don't care about them. They don't care about the Jehovah's Witnesses. They don't care about the uh, Buddhists. They can practice their faith freely with no intervention by the secularists of our nation. But not the Christians. Why not? Because we serve the true God. And that offends them. Because we strive to keep the law of the true God. And that attacks their conscience. Those who worship false gods don't offend them, don't attack their conscience, so they ignore them. But they will attack those who serve the true God, who believe in the, the Word of God, who seek to worship God as He commands. It's an attack, not of politics, not of the new against the old, not merely of even worldviews. It's an attack of the rebellion of the world against the true God. They can't reach the true God. They can't touch Him because He's in heaven. But they can touch those whom He loves. That's what Antiochus was seeking to do. That's what so enraged him about Israel. And that's what so enrages them today about us. But the question here is why? Because our God is sovereign. Nothing happens apart from His will, apart from His purpose. So why would God allow a ruler so wicked to have influence, to have authority over His people? The answer to that is wrapped up in the puzzle of verse 12. There we find a cause statement. And the host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression, and it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Because of transgression, rebellion. What is the transgression that caused the host to be given over to it along with the regular burnt offering? Was it the rebellion of Antiochus defiling the temple and the altar? No. Was it the rebellion of the faithful Jews against the false priest established by Antiochus? Surely not. No, it wasn't the sin of these unbelievers. 
that caused God to give over His people to Antiochus. But what we see in verse 23, at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face who understands riddles shall arise, and his power shall be great, but not by his own power. Notice that. Antiochus arises not by his own power, but by the power of a greater one. God enabled him to have power over his people because their transgressions had reached the limit. Because their transgressions, that of the church, that of Israel, it was caused by their worldly rebellion. That's what happened here. As I said before, Antiochus intended to unite his realm around Greek culture and Greek religion. Now there were faithful folks in the land. They called themselves the Hasidim. And they balked at that plan. But they were a small minority. Some of the Jews, especially among the leaders, as I said, conspired with Antiochus. Because they wanted his power. They wanted his influence. They wanted to ride his coattails to influence. That was wicked. To allow the imposition of pagan culture upon the church was absolutely wicked. It demonstrated that they weren't truly followers of God. 1 John 2 says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now that's not to say that God's people are to be sinless. We can't do that in this world. Even, even the apostles wrestled against sin. But those who truly belong to God will not willingly embrace godless, godlessness. They will not willingly embrace the world. They hate it. They mourn over their sins. They pray for God to transform them and deliver them. But that's not what the leaders among the Jews did. They willingly embraced Antiochus and his reform plan because they longed for the power and the prestige and the, the wealth of the world rather than the holiness of God. But that was just a few. There were a few who were faithful, who were absolutely incensed that Antiochus would do this. There were a few who conspired together with him. The vast majority were in neither kingdom. You know what the vast majority of the Jews in this time did? Nothing. They worked. And they raised their families. And they planted their crops. And they hoped it would all blow over. And they kept their heads down and their mouths shut. And that was rebellion. Because the people of God are the apple of His eye. They are His beloved ones. To stand silent in the face of God's beloved one is wicked. Can you imagine a man who hears his wife being slandered by the women of the community. Worse, who sees her being attacked. Her clothes ripped from her. Paint, or worse, being thrown at her. And he says, glad that's not me. Could you ever call him a decent husband? Of course not. Or what? Young people, what if that was your sister being mistreated and slandered and abused? If you as her brother 
just turned a blind eye and said, nope, if I say something, I'll get noticed, it'll be me. Could we call you anything other than wicked? Of course not. But that's what the people of God did when they allowed their leaders to cozy up to Antiochus with all of his programs of, of corrupting and leading astray the people of God, and they did nothing. They said nothing. They kept their heads down and they allowed it all to happen. Later, God would speak a warning about this, several warnings to his church. In Revelation 3, Revelation 2 and 3, he writes these letters to the churches of Asia Minor. And at the beginning of chapter 3, he says to the church in Sardis, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. He says, you're dead. You're not living. You're not seeking to pursue the glory and the honor of God. A little further on, writing to the church in Laodicea, he says, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spew you from my mouth. He wants us to be passionate for Him. He wants us to be utterly aghast when God's people are tempted and led astray. He wants us to stand up and protest and say, no, it must not happen. And when our leaders allow it, He wants us to come and implore them to turn back. But the people of Israel, by and large, did not do that. And so He unleashed Antiochus upon them. That they might know the wickedness of passively allowing the corruption of God's people. Folks, this is not a lesson for ancient Israel. This is a lesson for us today. We are surrounded today by the forces of Antichrist. They despise the king whose name we bear. They despise our efforts to not conform to worldliness. Now in parts of the world today, as I alluded to in my prayer, there are Christians who face demands that they conform to the world at gunpoint. We've been spared that. But in some ways, gunpoint would be easier. Because we couldn't rationalize our way out of acting. What's happening to the church in America today? Those who advance socialism are saying, you can, you can meet all you want as a church, but your help comes from the state. That's where you need to trust. That's who you need to believe. And the homosexual lobby says, if you really love, then you're going to embrace people the way they are, the way they were created, no matter what that looks like. Love is love. Now those are easy targets. We know homosexuality is wrong. We know socialism is a false gospel. But there's more subtle temptations, aren't there? Materialism. The siren song of possessions. Finding our identity, finding our purpose, finding our joy in what we own, what we possess. Being willing to, to, to waver on our convictions in order to gain wealth or status. Devoting our time, our energy, our gifts, our all to our hobbies, to our toys, to our experiences. Or what about pride, vanity? The world tells us to pride self-worth, self-image. And we're tempted to go along with that, aren't we? 
We want to be well thought of by our neighbors, well thought of by our co-workers, well thought of by our family, no matter what that costs. Or how about the temptations to compromise over God's Word? They ridicule us as backward, as outdated, because we believe the Bible when it says that God created the world in six days. They mock us as pharisaical for our worship or our Sabbath observance. They call us intolerant for insisting that Jesus is the only way. And we are tempted, especially our young ones are tempted to say, well, maybe Jesus is the main way. Or maybe Genesis 1 isn't all that clear after all about creation. Or or maybe, you know, you do you on the Sabbath. And we fall right into that same rut, that same trap of compromising for the sake of peace, of compromising on the basis of the fear of man. God calls you to something better. He calls the church to stand fast, to endure patiently, to speak boldly. Clearly, we must not be facilitators of worldliness and compromise in the church. The culture of this world, the standards of this world, its so-called wisdom must have no place in us and we must not introduce it. We may never introduce it. But we also must be willing to stand against it. We must not remain silent as the saints are led astray. We, We may never allow it to be said of us, brothers and sisters, that we failed to uphold God's holiness, that we failed to hold each other accountable for standing firm on the word of God and His truth. Because dear saints of the Lord, God knows, God sees. And He has given us abundant cause to stand firm. At times it looks indeed like the forces of darkness are winning. But we have sure knowledge that the battle has been won. And that's the last thing we see here. But it's such a wonderful thing. The last thing we see is that this desolation of the corrupt church It's completed. It's ended. It finds its conclusion in divine triumph. This vision left Daniel weak and confused and appalled. But he lacked the perspective that that would allow him to fully comprehend the church. Remember where Daniel is here. The Medes and the Persians haven't even taken over Babylon yet. He's still looking forward to the church being restored from exile. As we'll see next week, Lord willing, he's still praying for that to happen. And he suddenly sees a vision that goes beyond them being restored to Jerusalem to seeing them being corrupted again and attacked by the world. He sees, in essence, a second exile, and the first one hasn't even ended. No wonder he's appalled. No wonder he's undone by this. But we know the end of the story, don't we? For us, Daniel's vision is in the past. We can look and see how it happened, and how, even in the midst of all this, even in the face of Antiochus' wicked, powerful wrath, a small remnant was preserved. And that small remnant, they prayed, and they worshipped, and they quietly studied the Word of God, and when God provided the opening, they struck. And by this little group, you can read the story in Maccabees, by this little group, 
God rescued His people from the hand of Antiochus. And despite all His power, despite all His wealth, despite all His influence, God humbled Antiochus Epiphanes by the hand of these foolish, weak, faithful believers. At the end of his vision, Daniel is told, for 2300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored. Now like all the numbers in Daniel, those numbers are the source of no end of speculation. What in the world does that refer to? What does that mean? It's really not that hard. When we read, what we read there in verse 14 was spoken in answer to the question, how long? For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? You hear what's being asked. Why is the offering, the, the daily burnt offering, so important? It proclaimed Christ. It stood at the heart of their identity as Jews. This is how you are restored to God, how you're reconciled to the Lord. Not by the, the killing of sheep on the altar, but by what that points to. The Lamb of God who would be the sacrifice for our sin. It was a proclamation of Christ and it was ended by Antiochus. For how long does this have to continue? And he's told, for 2300 evenings and mornings. There was a sacrifice every evening. There was another one every morning. 2300 evenings and mornings. 2300 sacrifices. 1150 days. Just a shade over three years. You know how long the sacrifice was ended under Antiochus? About three years and two months. Exactly how long he said it would last. And then God restored it. Once more, God's word is proven true. God is proven faithful. God's strength is proven superior to that of men. And why? Verses 24 and 25. Antiochus's power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. That's all terrible, right? He shall even rise up against the prince of princes. And he shall be broken, but by no human hand. It wasn't Menelaus and those of whom are written in Maccabees who ultimately triumphed over Antiochus. It was God who used him as a scourge to punish his people and who, once that punishment had been effected, took him away and restored their worship and restored the proclamation of Christ and gave them back the right to worship God. And so it is with the enemies today. Whether false religions like Islam and socialism or rebellious movements like liberalism and Christian apathy, these arise according to the plan and purpose of God. He permits them for His purposes. He uses them to humble the church. But then in due time, He crushes the enemies that stand against His people. He restores them to their peace, to their prosperity. But not by our hand. It's by Him. So what we need to see the battle is not ours. It's His. Our calling is to trust Him. 
and to stand firm. You worry about what they will say about you? Don't worry about that. They'll renounce it all when they're standing before Christ and acknowledging the reality that they can no longer deny. You worry about what they will do to you? Well, they'll destroy my reputation. They'll destroy my business. They'll take my money. They'll imprison me. So what? It's only for a moment in the face of eternity. And in the end, they will have to stand before Christ and answer for it. So don't hate them and don't try to get even with them, but pity them, knowing that they'll have to answer for this cruelty before God Himself. And in the meantime, know that Jesus will empower you to bear the cross that He has ordained for you. He will sustain you right up to the end and then He will usher you into the fullness of His kingdom with joy. So what's the message here? The world hates us, no surprise. But God is faithful, God is sovereign, God is true, so stand firm with Him. Do not overlook, do not turn a blind eye to the ugliness of worldliness, to the ugliness of the attacks on the church. Stand firm, defend your brothers, call them to faithfulness in the Lord. Do not love the world or the things of the world. Be passionate about that. But know that their time, the world's time, will soon come to an end. And your Savior has already won. May God give us the strength to stand firm. May God give us the power to trust Him. And we will stand with Him at the end. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we can't stand firm. We cannot endure apart from your strength, your ability, your power. But if you empower us,